There's so many things about the great heroes of the faith that we wish we knew, but we don't. But there's certainly one thing we know for certain, and that is the great heroes of the faith never had seasons of doubt. Right? Hmm. Let's talk about that. If you have a Bible, turn with us to John chapter 20. We are in the midst of a series where we are looking at how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus then and there impacts our lives in the here and now. Two weeks ago, Jeff talked about how the resurrected Jesus meets us in our sorrows, looking at the story of Mary Magdalene. Last week, Matt talked about how the resurrected Jesus impacts our confusion, looking at the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This week, we want to talk about how the resurrected Jesus impacts our seasons of doubt. We pick it up in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I just want to go that far and kind of set the background for the story here. So this would have been the evening of Resurrection Sunday. So the encounter with Mary Magdalene, the encounter with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and this encounter with the disciples all happen on the same day. This is the evening of Resurrection Sunday. John records it as the first day of the week. This is not just a reference to the fact that it was Sunday. John has all these little hints in his gospel that this is the fulfillment of the promise. This is actually the beginning of new creation. You had original creation and the fall and all that goes with that. But as of the moment Jesus rose from the dead in a garden, this was the beginning of something new and something different, the fulfillment of the promise. Matt talked about this a little bit at the end of the service last week. The disciples are in a room in hiding. Some people think it was the upper room. That may or not may not be the case. But what we do know for certain is the door is shut, and what's implied in that is the door is shut and locked, and they're in hiding, and we don't have to guess why. The text tells us because they were absolutely terrified in fear of the Jews. So just to be clear what these guys had been through, on Thursday, they were in the upper room with Jesus, and one can only imagine how incredibly intense those conversations were. 
They leave, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I think one of the reasons they were so exhausted and fell asleep is because the intensity level was just so high. Out come the soldiers and they arrest Jesus and the disciples, fearing for their lives, scatter. So they would have, in different perspectives or vantage points, witnessed the arrest of Jesus, the trials of Jesus, the absolutely horrific torture of Jesus, and then the gruesome crucifixion and death of Jesus. And they had to have been absolutely traumatized and terrified. Jesus is buried, but now word is leaking out three days later that the body's not in the tomb and the body is missing. So they had every reason to be absolutely terrified that they were next and the Jews were coming for them. So they're locked down, they're terrified, and in the midst of that, Jesus appears. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus appears. Clearly he didn't knock on the door. Did Jesus come through the door? Did he come through the walls? Did he just appear? We aren't really told. But it is Jesus, literally, physically, bodily, Jesus appearing before them and utters the words, peace be with you. The Greek word that's translated peace is as close as we get to the Greek word that connects with the Hebrew word shalom. It is filled with all kinds of meaning and was a very important word in the conversation with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. Jesus told them in a couple conversations there that he was giving them his peace, a peace that the world cannot give them, but he can give them. These disciples would have had no idea that what was necessary for Jesus to fulfill that promise was that he would first have to make it possible for them as sinful men to have peace with the holy God, which would require his crucifixion for the sins of the world. He would be buried and rise from the dead, giving them a hope and a future that no matter what they face, no matter what they go through, they have every reason for peace. So Jesus has now done what was necessary to fulfill the promise to give them peace. I think these men had learned over time that as long as Jesus is with us, everything's going to be okay. I think it took them a while to learn that, to become utterly dependent upon him. But if there was not enough wine for the wedding, no problem. Jesus will turn the water to wine. If you don't have enough food to feed 5,000 hungry people, no problem. We just need a few loaves and fishes. 
If you're out on the Sea of Galilee and it's a storm that you think is going to kill you, no problem, Jesus is in the boat. Everything's going to be okay. Whether you're lame, whether you're blind, whether you're sick, even whether you're dead, Jesus raised the dead to life. They had come to believe as long as Jesus is with us, everything's going to be okay. But now Jesus is dead. He's gone. He's not with them. And they are confused and they are traumatized and they're trying to figure this out. When Jesus appears in their midst and he tells them, peace be with you. I think it's very interesting the way John records verse 20. Because what John tells us is Jesus initiated, showing them his hands and his side. They didn't ask for that. Jesus understands these men are traumatized, they are terrified, and they are very confused. What they're being asked to believe is really remarkable. Jesus understands they're struggling. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't scold them. But rather, he meets them in their struggle. And he offers, he takes the initiative to say, it's really me. Check it out. Look at my hands. Look at my side. And John writes this very carefully when he says, the disciples then rejoiced. They saw the evidence, then they believed. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So it's interesting, after Jesus shows them his hands and his side, and they believe, he says it again, peace be with you. You're never going to know peace as long as you doubt. Jesus understood that. He understood how confusing this was. So Jesus showed them the evidence. They believed. So he repeats it. If you believe, then peace be with you. Then he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. This again is one of John's hints that this is the first day of new creation. This takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when in the first creation, Adam, made in the image of God, was filled with the very breath of God as God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. But now the fall and the mess and all that's taken place, but God has fulfilled his promise. This is the first day of something new where Jesus breathed into them his very presence, the life of the Spirit in them to experience life 
now in the new creation. Empowered by the Spirit of God, he would send them out on mission. The text is kind of confusing the way it's written. It is not saying the disciples would say who's forgiven and who's not forgiven. It's saying that they would be proclaimers of the message of the gospel. And those who receive it have their sins forgiven. Those who reject it remain in their sins. It was their job to declare that message. And that was the reality of the message that they were delivering. For our purposes, we move on to verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas is one of the 12. He also has the name Didymus, which was his Greek name. It's a word that means twin. That's really all we know about that. It's very common for these people to have both Jewish name and a Greek name. For whatever reason, Thomas was not with them when Jesus appeared to them. Now, there's no reason to read anything negative into that. The disciples had scattered. There were lots of disciples. Maybe he was hiding out with some other disciples. Maybe he went to get food or something else. All we know is he wasn't there. So the disciples say to him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas responds by saying, unless I see his hands and his side, I will not believe. It's that statement that earns Thomas the unfortunate label of doubting Thomas. The reality is he was not asking for anything more than what the others had already seen. And Jesus is the one that took the initiative to show the others his hands and his feet. I find it a perfectly reasonable request. So what do we know about Thomas? Actually, very little. Most of the time, he's just listed in the list of the 12 apostles. John is the only gospel writer that gives us three glimpses of Thomas. The first one is in chapter 11. In chapter 10 of John, Jesus and the disciples are down around Jerusalem in Judea, and it has become extremely dangerous. As a matter of fact, the religious Jews pick up stones, and they are going to seize him and kill him. So he and the disciples flee up north to Galilee to get away from the danger. While up north in Galilee, word comes that his dear friend Lazarus is dying. So Jesus tells the disciples, I have to go. Lazarus is in Bethany, which is just across the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. 
extremely dangerous. So the disciples worked their hardest to talk Jesus out of it. You can't, you can't go, they will kill you. Finally, when it's clear Jesus is going, in verse 26, it's Thomas that says, come, let us go with him that we may die with him. Thomas was fiercely loyal. Thomas was courageous to the core. This wasn't some emotional, exaggerated statement. It was reasonable to think if Jesus goes back, they will kill him and they will kill us with him. When he said it, he meant it. Let us go with him that we may die with him. That's Thomas. The next time you see him is in chapter 14. They're in the upper room. Jesus says to them, I have to go away. And I'm going to be gone for a while. But you can come to me. You know the way. They're all thinking it. Thomas is the one that says it. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? Again, Thomas is fiercely loyal. He's courageous. He just wants to be with Jesus. Tell us where you're going. That's where I want to be. That question gives birth to one of the most beloved verses in our Bible. As Jesus responds by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's Thomas. So now Thomas is simply asking to see what they have seen. These men are confused. They're terrified. They're shaken. It's not unreasonable for Thomas to wonder, what are these guys talking about? What have they actually seen? And emotionally, he's not going to believe unless he sees it himself. Verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. So the way the Jews calculate days, eight days would have been a week later. This is the next Sunday. They are in maybe the same room, maybe not. But they're still hiding. They're still terrified. The door is shut and locked. And once again, Jesus appears in their midst. And once again, Jesus says, peace be with you. As long as you doubt, you will not know peace. Jesus knows this. 
That's why he has showed himself to the others, and that's why he immediately turns to Thomas. He offers Thomas the same thing he offered the others. Check it out for yourself. Look at my hands, look at my side. Stick your hand in there, touch me. Now just stop and think about what these people were being asked to believe. To believe that their friend, the person they had walked with and talked with and done life with, who had been gruesomely crucified on a cross and buried is actually alive and standing before them. That's a lot to comprehend. It's a lot to take in. But Thomas, in that moment, seeing the evidence, utters what is the most declarative statement of who Jesus is by any person anywhere in the Gospels. Thomas responds by saying, my Lord and my God. Absolutely remarkable. Stop and think about what it would be like to think about this is your friend. You've walked with him. You've talked with him. You've laughed with him. You've eaten with him. You've done life with him. And you're being asked to comprehend that not only is he the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, he is actually the God of the universe in human flesh. That is absolutely mind-blowing. It's remarkable that in that moment, having seen the evidence, Thomas utters, my Lord and my God. These are the bookends of the Gospel of John. It starts in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It bookends having seen all the evidence that John has recorded with Thomas's statement, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, Thomas, it's great that you believe that. You can't really know my peace as long as you doubt. He believed. But blessed are all those who are going to believe having not seen and touched what you have seen and touched, meaning all those that would follow. But John is not saying you are without evidence. As a matter of fact, it's the very next thing he says. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's more than enough evidence 
recorded from the eyewitnesses to the events that we might believe. One of the reasons I don't like the label Doubting Thomas is because Thomas was not asking for anything more than what the others had already seen, which Jesus willingly took the initiative to offer. What these people were being asked to believe is staggering. But I also don't like the label doubting Thomas because I think it implies that if you doubt, you're on the naughty list. If you doubt, you're a bad Christian. You go to your room and you think about that for a while. So what happens is we pretend we don't doubt. We suppress it. We hide it, because if, you're a, if you doubt, then you're a bad Christian. But that's simply not true. We all have our seasons of doubt. The great heroes of the faith all had their seasons of doubt. As a matter of fact, it's doubt that directs us to the truth as we pursue answers to our questions. Jesus doesn't meet us there to scold us. Jesus doesn't meet us there to say, what is your problem? Jesus doesn't push us away and say, I really don't want to spend time with you if you're going to be a doubter. It's just the opposite. Like with the disciples, like with Thomas, he lovingly meets us there and helps us to understand and believe. Gary Habermas, in his book, Dealing with Doubt, identifies three categories of doubt which I find very helpful. The first category is what he calls factual doubters. A factual doubter is simply someone investigating these truth claims. We're not saying the message of the gospel is some fairy tale that somebody made up. We're saying it's actually rooted in human history. You can investigate it. You can challenge it. You can figure it out. Thomas was a factual doubter. Once he saw the evidence, he believed. In the life group questions and in the transcript from this sermon, we are including a list of resources to help you with that. There's nothing wrong with being a factual doubter. It's often that doubt that leads you to the truth. So we want to provide resources that can help you get there. The second category is what he calls emotional doubters. 
Emotional doubters, it's more in their emotions. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of struggle. And no amount of facts seem to make it go away. If Thomas was an emotional doubter, he would have touched the hands, touched the side of Jesus, but he would have said, okay, but I don't know. Still not sure. What if it doesn't really work? What if I'm not really saved? What if this isn't really true? That's emotional doubt. There's something else going on there. And no amount of facts is going to solve that. So the idea of emotional doubt is something has happened that has hurt you. Maybe you think God let you down. Maybe you think God wasn't there for you. Maybe you think God didn't keep a promise. Something's happened that has deeply wounded you, and that's what the issue is. So no matter how many facts you're presented with, you're still struggling with, I don't know. It's not sure about this. Maybe God doesn't even like me. In Habermas's book, which is also on the list of resources, he gives some very helpful information to help you work your way through trying to figure out what is it and how can you work your way through to some resolution of that doubt. It may be helpful to talk to a trusted friend. It may be helpful to talk to one of the pastors. Maybe helpful to talk to your life group leader or a spiritual caregiver. If for you it's emotional doubt, it's painful. Don't just sit there in that. Jesus wants to meet you there. He wants to help you. But you have to figure out what is that doubt and how do you work it through to resolution that you might experience the peace that he offers. The third category is what he calls volitional doubters. Volitional doubters are simply people that choose not to believe. I, I'm just not gonna believe. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter how much evidence there is. This is the Pharisees. It doesn't matter how many miracles Jesus did. It doesn't matter whether he rose from the dead or not. They won't believe. It's just a choice of the will. I don't care. I won't believe. And that is what it is. Thomas was a factual doubter. When he saw the evidence, he believed. He believed to such an extent that he would dedicate the rest of his life to proclaiming the message of a resurrected Savior. Thomas, according to history, would make his way to India, would preach the gospel in India, and ultimately in AD 72 was stabbed to death with a sword from people who no longer wanted to hear the message of Jesus and the gospel. I've actually stood at the memorial site outside of Chennai, India, where Thomas was martyred for a message he believed and proclaimed all the way 
to death. That doesn't sound like a doubter to me. That sounds like someone who saw the evidence and really, truly believed. Wherever you find yourself, your doubt can lead you to the truth. Jesus wants to meet you there. He wants to help you through that in order that you might believe that by believing you might find life in his name. Our Father, we celebrate that what we declare is not a myth, it's not a fairy tale. It's a story that is rooted and grounded in history. A story that can be investigated. A story that can be challenged. A story that can be believed. God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, may we invite you into our doubt that you might lead us through it to the truth, that we might believe, and in believing, find life. In Jesus' name, amen.